Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Presbyterian Church weekly podcast. We're glad you joined us. Trinity is a member congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America and the Acts 29 Network. We are located in Owasso, Oklahoma. Follow us at trinityowasso.com. Also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trinity Owasso. All right, friends, if you have a Bible, please find a Bible and turn with us to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Let me take you to the fields between Bethlehem and Jerusalem about 4 BC when the Lord appeared that Luke writes about in Luke chapter 2 beginning at verse 8. If you're willing and able, would you please stand with me, now that we've all been seated, please stand with me to read from Luke chapter 2 verses 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. God's glory reveals your deepest needs and your highest hopes. God's glory reveals your deepest needs and your highest hopes. That's the theme that we are bringing out of Luke chapter 2 that the text emphasizes, and we're going to think through and focus on through two movements today, your need for glory and your response to glory. First, your need for glory. All of us have a desire to be accepted, to be known, to be taken in, to be welcomed, to be loved. God's glory reveals your deepest needs and your highest hopes. All of us pursue glory. We pursue glory as naturally as you breathe oxygen. The one who coaches their son's baseball team and the one who pursues the stock market pursues it for the same reason. They pursue glory. Now, glory in the Bible is probably one of the most misunderstood words there is. Glory and the word glorification or the word glorios, the adjective, is taken from a number of Hebrew and Greek words. In Hebrew, the word kabod, in tefara, hod, hadar, in Greek, doxa or time, 
or eulogia, all of these refer to this idea of glory. Kabod is the term that we most naturally associate with glory in the Old Testament, and kabod simply refers to riches or wealth. And if you have ever seen someone who has a lot of riches or wealth, if you were back in the ancient Near East, you know that they would have pockets weighed down with coins, and that makes them what? Weighty, heavy. And so the word glory means weightiness. It means to be full of riches, literally. It means to weigh something. And God's glory sinks to the bottom of every other pursuit of glory that we have. All of us have a glory quotient. We have a glory quotient. And it's as though at the Garden of Eden, God presented Adam with, I have a prop, hang on, sorry, I'm turning my back to you. He gives us a giant bucket. And despite the fact that we think heaven is like game day, it's not a Home Depot bucket, but uh, he gives us a giant bucket. And he says, you know what? I'm going to fill you to the brim with what? With my glory, and you will enjoy it for all of creation together in the new Jerusalem. But when Adam fell from in sin, Adam took this bucket and said, no, thank you, God. I don't want your bucket. I would choose to pursue my own glory. And so Adam took a tablespoon. And Adam said, this is the tablespoon I'm going to pursue glory with for my entire life. And sin changes the dimensions of our glory quotient. We still desire glory. We still want glory. Every single one of you, most of your decisions this week were in the pursuit of glory. Some of them were selfish pursuits of glory. Some of them were, because of the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you, beautiful and wonderful as you move toward others in love. But most of us are finding ourselves, we are just scooping out little pieces of glory across our week. Kids that obey, a reputation around town, the money in our, in our stock portfolio, whatever it may be, you're pursuing acts of glory. And what, what the shepherds were confronted with were the angels who came to them in the middle of them tending their flocks between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, flocks that were probably there for the Passover later that spring. And they see this amazing array of might. These angels say, glory to God in the highest. And the glory of God appears to them when the angel appears and they are confronted with God's glory. And whenever you're confronted with the beauty of God's glory, it is like you move from your cat food to filet mignon. You move from the things that you've pursued and you just recognize, you recognize that on your own, all you got is a tablespoon. And the Lord says to you, I'm offering you so much more. And we are all trying to figure out how do we get back to the garden? Caught in the devil's bargain, as Joni Mitchell said in her song. In the Old Testament, it is replete with our thirst and our desire for glory. And the first place that you see glory is in the Old Testament where God's glory comes shining from a cloud that settled on the tabernacle. It was the glory cloud in Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16 verse 9 says, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, 
Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. There it was, the first sight of God's glory. He comes in a glory cloud where he, he comes and he lands on the tabernacle, and he settles with his presence. And all of Israel, because they are intoxicated with true beauty, trading in their tablespoons for buckets, they see it. They stay there. As long as that cloud was on that tabernacle, they stayed there and they worshiped and they followed that cloud by day in the pillar of fire, by night. They followed the glory of the Lord because they were hungry for it. Just like you did this week in your pursuits of glory. In the next sighting of glory in the Old Testament, it's not something that merely accompanies God, like the array of light that accompanied him emanating from the cloud or the fire by night. No, but it is God's very covenantal presence among his people, First Chronicles chapter 29. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, and you are exalted as head above all. God isn't just, he doesn't just give us pictures of his glory, but God himself is glory. His presence is where his glory is found. If you're a note taker, you might note that Psalm 24-7 or Ephesians 1-6 also speaks to this, that God's reputation is weightier than all the gods of the world, which is what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 2 when he says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, my weight, my glory, and they have hewn for themselves broken cisterns. They have used tablespoons, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And you know why you're famished? Children, do you know why you can't be delivered from your sin on your own? Because we are experts at using tablespoons when the Lord offers us buckets. Even more than that, he offers us the glory of his presence, not just in the tabernacle through the glory cloud, not just in 1 Chronicles 29 through his actual presence among his people, for he is weightier than all other gods. But third, God gives us his own reputation when it's known and adored. When God's reputation is known and adored, there is the presence of the glory of God. In the garden, God created Adam to walk perfect in his glorious presence with unity. And Adam, tempted by Satan, traded in his bucket and he took a tablespoon and he said, thank you, but I think I'll go at it on my own. And he didn't say a word to Eve as she was tempted by the serpent. He absconded in his responsibility. He acquiesced and she sinned and he didn't lead, didn't say anything. And all of us in Adam fell. And we still have this yearning and this longing. That's why so many of us are so tired. I mean, are you tired? So many of us are so tired because even though many of us in this room are new creations in Jesus, we have pursued glory through all kinds of other things. You see right now the world's pursuing glory through political insights and we're pursuing glory through economic power and we're pursuing glory through the, the, the stability of our occupations or we feel way uncomfortable when those foundations have been shaken because we're, we're glory seekers. 
You have a need for glory. And that in it of itself is not sinful. That's natural. And the Bible assumes that you are a glory seeker. Blaise Pascal said in his thoughts many years ago in his book called Thoughts, Penses, that he said, the man who goes off to war and the man who stays home are both driven by the same pursuit. That is the desire. The desire for glory. Even the man, Blaise Pascal says, that hangs himself is pursuing what? He's pursuing glory because he thirsts to be welcomed, accepted, and known in a way that drives him in everything he does for the pursuit of his own glory. If you're following along in our Advent prayer guide, you know that this week um, was on Thursday. We read Psalm chapter 9, and, and in Psalm 9, it says, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. He is a stronghold in the times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. O Lord, you do not forsake those who seek you. Those who know his name, know his reputation, know his kabod, know his weightiness, know the joy of knowing him. They find their souls satisfied. In the final uh, chapters of Exodus, when Moses commands Israel to, to set up the tabernacle, he tells them to set up the Ark of the Covenant, and he put the Ark of the Covenant behind the veil in the Holy of Holies, and then he wants them to set up, you know, he sets the, the showbread, and he set up the lamp, and then he set up the, the basin outside of, of the temple, and, and then the, the altar, the sacrifices he sets up there. And then the very end of the book of Exodus, when all of this is set up, Moses writes to conclude the book, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set up. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out to the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire by night in the sight of all of Israel throughout all of their journey. And despite all of Israel's hard heart and all of their murmuring, and all of their yeah, manna again. They knew that when the glory of the Lord settled in amidst all of their desperation, they didn't leave it. They sat and they just basked in it. Why? Because it was just a little picture of being satisfied at the most deep level because God's presence was there. God's glory reveals your deepest needs and it reveals your highest hopes. In, in what do you pursue glory? What do you hope your children and your children's children say about you? They left you a lot of money? He was a great baseball coach? What do, they, what do you want them to say about you? Honest questions for honest times. Because we all have an answer to that question. And don't you know that you are, as parents, you are trained to not hand your children tea tablespoons and say, good luck. You are called to point them beyond the cat food to the glorious filet mignon of the gospel and say, drink of it, eat of it, take it up. This is what defines us as our covenant God has called us to be his, 
This defines us. So whatever your economic mobility may be or lack thereof, whatever your, your baseball coaching skills may be or lack thereof, whatever your, your, your hobbies or whatever, like the time you spend with your children, you are discipling them whether you recognize it or not. And if you don't actively disciple them, as we said a couple of weeks ago, the world will disciple them and they will outpace you. What you seek in pursuing glory will become the default mode of the next generation. And if we do not look again at the beauty of the gospel, and we don't come to grips with the fact that we need it now more than we did the day we first believed, we are sitting ducks. Because it's only God's glory that reveals our deepest needs and our highest hopes. And he does so at the same time. What were Israel's deepest needs? Israel's deepest needs will be delivered from the wilderness. <laughs> the same needs we have. Lord, deliver us from the wilderness. We have been brought in through your work in our life. We have been brought through justification by faith into the Christian life. But we still struggle with sin. We need your help, Father. Deliver us from the wilderness. Some of you in the room still need to be delivered from the slavery to sin. We still need to be delivered from sin and death. And today is a day of salvation for you. And all throughout the prophets, the Lord says, I am the Lord. I have called you in my righteousness. Isaiah 42. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. I will make a covenant with you forever. You'll be my covenant people, a light to the nations. I will open the eyes of the blind. I will bring the prisoners out from the dungeons. For I am the Lord. And that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved angels. The angel announced in Luke chapter 2, I bring you good news of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ our Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And in Christ, this child, Jesus, is the fulfillment of that tabernacle and that temple. He is the glory cloud personified. He is the glory of God in our midst. And we don't want to leave it. He shares the very glory of God because he was and is God, and he became man. John 17, 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus, fully God, is able to pay the infinite price for your sin, and Jesus, fully man, is a suitable substitute for you to pay that price. And Jesus restores the glory that we lost in Adam. This is what Romans chapter 8 is all about. 1 Corinthians 2.7, 2 Corinthians 4.6, Hebrews 2.10. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God's glory reveals your deepest needs and your highest hopes. Though No wonder the angel pronounced it when he said, this will be a sign to you. And suddenly, 
As the angels do, they crane their neck to look at redemption. They long unfallen like human beings. They long to see what it looks like to be transformed. And as soon as he pronounces the good news, the hosts of heaven rush in. And they all say, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest in excelsis Deo. Yes, Lord. Walking in your truth, your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. Does this mark you? If it doesn't, it can. And you can trade your, your tablespoons for buckets. Yes, it's possible. But you have to first get a glimpse of a sense of God's incredible love for you. And he has displayed that in the glorious incarnation of the Lord Jesus. Now, we all have a need for glory. That's the first point. We have a need for it. And we're all going to pursue that in different ways. And God has revealed his glory throughout the Old Testament, first in the glory cloud and in his covenantal presence, and in the prophets calling us to yearn for it, and God proclaiming that he is jealous for his own reputation. But how do you respond to it? Notice what the text says. There's two responses in this text in Luke chapter 2. What's the first response? And it said, the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The first response to God's glory is fear. It always is fear. Nathan Duke, a couple of, uh, when was it, Nathan? Last week? Two weeks ago. He shared, he shared with the youth what a real picture of a biblical angel looks like. And we love the bulletin coverage, great, but it's not actually the, the, the literal picture of what, what the angels in Scripture appear. Like, they have six wings, and they're freaky scary. And Nathan is showing them pictures of what they think biblical angels might have looked like. And so it's no wonder that these Men who could handle lions and they could handle wolves and they could handle oppressors. You know, when they see this angel with six wings appear to them, they, all they've got is a shepherd's crook. You'd be freaked out too. And they're just shot through with fear and they're trembling in the Lord's presence. And their only response to the Lord's presence is to fall on your face in fear and holiness. If Jesus showed us the grandeur of his glory right now, we would be undone. And so when you hear the good news of the gospel or you hear the, 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 the truth of Scripture that you are fallen and dead in your trespasses and sins, that you cannot get out from under your sin problem, although you can get out from hundreds of other little problems that you've worked out this week, the problem of sin is far deeper than you can possibly work out on your own because you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You need the hand of the Lord Christ to pull you up. He does it. And you, Romans chapter 1 says, are conscious of God's existence, whether you're here and you're a Christian or not. And you know that your conscience constantly condemns you. You know that God exists through creation and through all that has been made, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and you will rest in the fear of the Lord with no hope of welcome, no hope of deliverance, no hope of acceptance, unless there's also good news that comes with you. And how you move from fear in God's presence to joy, this passage also, also teaches us, because notice what had to happen for the shepherds to move from fear to joy. 
first. How do you move from fear to joy in the presence of God's holiness? Number one, you have to hear the good news. You have to hear it. Which means that for a lot of us right now, we're, we're tired in worship and you're wondering, when am I going to end? Because you, you're not trained to listen very well. To prepare well for worship means you need to start on Saturday night. You need to come to worship to say, Lord, speak to me. Speak to me. Acts 2.10 says, and when the angel said to them, and without the angel opening their mouth, these shepherds would have been locked in fear. And what did the angel say? He says, fear not. First words out of the angel's mouth almost every time. Don't be afraid. For listen up. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for you and for all people. Where do we hear this word today? You hear this word today, wherever two or three are gathered, you hear it in public worship. And several weeks ago, I challenged you to come to worship every week until the end of the year. How are you doing? Do you consider, do you pray about, do you think about your weekend ahead of time? Do you think, well, we need to figure out how we can worship together with God's people even as we're traveling? We need to fight to value it because there is something mysterious that happens in the public preaching of God's word that does not happen with your quiet time. Although your quiet times can be rich and beautiful, when you read God's word alone, it's as though the Lord says, store it up, store it up. For on Sunday, you'll be able to hear those encouragements from me confirmed, and you can enjoy them. And we want you to know God's word, but it is in the ordained means of the preaching of his word where he mysteriously changes you. Keep coming. Prioritize worship. Your prioritization of worship and the reasons why you come to worship is going to be one of the chief witnesses in the next decade in this city. Because more and more people will choose pajamas and blueberry pancakes, and we can all say, man, it's tempting to want to enjoy that on Sunday morning. But the fact that you get up, Jonathan Edwards tells a story of one of the ways that he, there was a time when he, he lived near a man who was Jewish, and he said, watching this man pray taught me about the importance of prayer, because he was incredibly disciplined to pray. And it was his lifestyle that drew him in to say, what should it therefore be like for one who knows the Lord through Jesus? How much more ought he to be committed to prayer, knowing that the Messiah has already come? Don't underestimate your witness to your neighbors in driving down your street every Sunday morning to come to worship. Hear the good news. And that happens primarily for New Covenant people in the context of worship together. Secondly, the angels say, for unto you, Jesus came. The focus is not on the wise men. The focus is not on the pilgrims to Israel for the census. He says, for unto you. And as I'll talk about next week, how shocking that would have been for the shepherds who were the outcasts of society. Unto you. Unto you, Ron, Gail, Lola, Nathan, Daniel, Andy. Unto you, Jesus came. Unto you. Do you understand what that means? 
It means that he loves you so much that he's been pursuing you and he's after you and he can't wait for you to trade in your tablespoons for buckets. And one day we'll trade our buckets in for oceans of his glory and of his grandeur. You have to hear it. And you have to believe that Jesus came unto you. And thirdly, you have to see the sign, Acts 2.12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. The Greek word for sign, Simeon. This is, this is the same thing that religious leaders pursued Jesus about almost all of his life. Twice in Matthew, they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, show us a sign. If you're really the Messiah, all right, let's see it. Show it to us. Bring it to us. And what is a sign? A sign is an object or a quality or an event or an entity whose presence or occurrence indicates the presence or the occurrence of something else. And these shepherds would have been very familiar with natural signs. Uh, Red sky communicates the change of weather. Thunder in the distance communicates rains on the way. Medical symptoms communicates that their sheep are diseased and they need veterinary help. And so when the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 16, and they say, Jesus, show us a sign. And they said this to test him. And Jesus answered them, when it is evening, you will say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be a stormy day because the sky is red and threatening. And you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except, here's the sign, you ready for it? The sign of Jonah. And then Jesus left and departed. And the sign of Jonah, of course, Matthew chapter 12 tells us, Jesus explains it, and he says the sign of Jonah is just like Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. In other words, the sign for us is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so today, when you hear glory to God in the highest, you're not looking for a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. You're coming to the cross, shepherds. You run back to the cross of Christ, and you pass by the cross of Christ in repentance and faith as you come to the table. That's the sign, the offensive, bloody cross of the crucified Lord Jesus, who was like Jonah, buried in the belly of the earth and rose again three days later. You have to hear the good news. You have to believe it's for you, and you have to see the sign that you can only have your deepest glory need met when you come before the cross of Christ and are undone. Listen, in our, in our pursuit of glory, we can be left outside, forsaken, rejected, turned away, ignored, pitied, play the victim, or you can be brought in. You can be welcomed, accepted, delighted in, rejoiced over, taken up into the glory of the Lord of glory. And we don't want, we don't want to be rejected. That's why Calvin, John Calvin said, your heart is an idol-making factory, turning out little idols to pursue glory all the days of your life. But that glory, infinite glory is offered us. How? Whenever you recognize that it is not in the pursuit of your glory, but the pursuit of God's glory when you are most deeply satisfied. 
And in your union with Christ, as you turn from your own self-saving strategies and you begin to pursue the glory of the Lord, you find that your tablespoons are traded in for buckets and you're satisfied for the first time in your life. And friends, it is the glory and the beauty and the grandeur of God when you swim in his presence and you see it. You will be like the shepherds who immediately leave their flocks and they run to Bethlehem to see if these things are so. And so this morning, run back to his word. For those of you who have left the Bible or doubting, run to it. Run to repentance and faith together and come to the Lord's table in just a moment, rejoicing that your deepest need and your highest hopes are satisfied in the Lord himself's pursuit of his own glory. And that's the reason for which he has made each of us to join him in that. And this breaks out into love toward the person sitting next to you. On, on the Trinity blog are questions about the sermon this morning that are active now. And, and one of the questions encourages you to read this great old sermon by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. And, and Lewis says the, one of the ways you know the weight of glory is if you recognize that when you look at your neighbor, your husband, your spouse, you don't look at them now as mere mortals. You see them and you imagine what they are going to be like in all their glorious splendor and arrayed might in heaven. And you would be tempted to fall down and worship them if you saw your spouse. I know it's hard, at least for my case, it's hard for Lauren to imagine this, but imagine your spouse and all of the grandeur and glory and sinless and perfection. You would be tempted to fall down and worship. And Lewis says, it is a profound responsibility given us that there are no ordinary people in this room. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. You have never talked to a mere mortal. What this means for us, Trinity, is that you trade in your tablespoons of pursuing glory and you take your deepest delight in God. And you lower your ego. You recognize that the gospel preached to these shepherds is also the gospel preached to you. Because you need it. And you recognize that in the pursuit of God's glory, your deepest needs and your highest hopes are found together in the cross of Christ. And you can be satisfied yet again. Don't you see it? Wesley wrote it like this, hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace in his third stanza. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Heaven-born Prince of Peace, that's Isaiah 9, 6. Hail the Son of Righteousness, that's Jeremiah 33, which Janice read for us earlier today. Light and life to all he brings. There's John 8, there's John 10, 10. Risen with healing in his wings. There's Isaiah 35. Mild he lay his glory by. There's the kenosis of Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Born that man no more may die. Jesus, the second Adam that came, he destroyed sin and death once for all. There's your second Corinthians 5, verse 21. Born to raise the sons of earth. There's the valley of dry bones. There's your Ezekiel 37. Born to give them second birth. There's Nicodemus for you. There's John chapter 3. 
Hark the herald angels sing. There's your Luke 2. Glory to the newborn king. There's Revelation chapter 5, which when John looked, he looked. He saw, he saw the line of Judah and he looked. And there, what does he see? He sees a lamb, a lamb who is to be slain for the sins of the world. Jesus doesn't come naturally. He comes surprisingly. And he comes to you. Do you see your deepest need and your highest hope are found in the radical pursuit of the glory of God? It can be yours through faith and repentance.